Some more specifics are thrown out. You wonder at the end, how does he know this? And the play ends. Welcome back. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai coming at you from Self-Isolation Station, Michigan. That's right. We are in quarantine. We are running solo, but it works out because that's what we do every week anyway. Yeah. It changes nothing <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> ah, we are recording states apart, so do not worry. We definitely have not come within six feet of each other. And unless you and the listening audience are someone who knows us really well, well, there's a few of you out there. There's very low risk that we're going to come within six feet of you either. So all is well. The no script <laughs> continues. Uh, quarantine or no quarantine? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll keep coming at you with great plays, great conversations about plays, and we'll keep coming at you at least for another week-ish, week yeah, two weeks if you count this one, with mini-month. That's right. We have been talking about short plays, one acts, whatever you want to call them. Uh, these are plays by really great playwrights that just don't get talked about or done as often as full-length work. Um, there are just some really spectacular one acts out there. We're only covering four during our themed month this season, but we're hoping to cover more in the future in some fashion or another. We have so far talked about a play by Christopher Durang called Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All for You. And last week we talked about the great Carol Churchill and her play Far Away. Well, those are two incredible, well-known uh, mainstays of theater and now this week we are back again to an incredible well-known mainstay of theater especially of American theater or western theater and it is he is Mr. David Mamet. Yep, David Mamet. We're returning to Mamet for the second time. I was like one time. off. Yeah, I'm always one <laughs> off on these. <laughs> and just like uh, Carol Churchill last week, we've done two of Mamet's full lengths and then we're covering one of his one acts here during mini months. Mamet is very well known for his full-length play, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, American Buffalo, Glengarry Glen Ross, Oleana, plays that are done everywhere. Uh, you know, every city in the country probably has had a Mammoth production of one of those shows in it, I would guess. But he has a really robust short play, one-act catalog library as well. Yeah, and it's a great way to get introduced to introduced. Introduced. <laughs> it's a great way to be introduced it's a, to it's a some of those dusting of mammon as you encounter <laughs> this play. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to stick with it. Uh, <laughs> It's a great way to be introduced to some of uh, Mamet's Mamet-isms and the way that he likes to write characters and scenes and plays. Um, we're, today we are talking about his short play, The Shawl. The Shawl. 
this might be, man, it'd be tough to say. I always, I always start these things so, so like I'm going to say something really impactful and then I back way off. Because I was about <laughs> to say, this might be my favorite one-act short play of all time. But I, you, as, soon as, I, as soon as you heard me, as soon as I started that sentence, I was like, whoa, whoa, that's too strong. <laughs> it's too, too strong. strong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is certainly in my top five. It might be my favorite. I love this play. I really want to do it someday. Um, it's one of the only Mammoth plays that I feel that strongly about. <laughs> Mammoth is amazing, but I, I'm just not all that interested in doing a lot of his work. But man, this one, this is a play I would just love to do. Yeah, it's quite the fun play. Got some fun characters and fun ways that they interact and and slowly reveal stories. So I'm excited to get to jump into it. Before that, we before we do though, I do want to take just a second and. Refer you over to our patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you uh, right up front to all the patrons who are a part of uh, contributing to this podcast, being sure that this podcast has legs under it to keep moving forward. As you all know, this podcast is a labor of love for us. Alas, it is not a free labor of love. There are some associated costs. There's hosting fees, cost of scripts that we can't find in our libraries or uh, whatever other ways we come up with scripts. Um, and, and some of those fees end up falling on us as well as a considerable amount of time involved. So if you're looking for a way to uh, contribute to the podcast, if you're liking what you're hearing if you just jumped in or if you've been listening for a long time head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast you'll find a couple of different tiers of membership over there the lowest one is for just one dollar and at that one dollar a month or twelve dollars over a whole year you're helping support the podcast you're helping support tens and tens of episodes of no script for just that one (laughs) dollar amount so (laughs) thank you so much to everyone who's been over to patreon.com slash no script podcast we'll see you over there and now back to the script yeah back to the script so like we said earlier mammoth has a really robust library of one act plays short plays however you want to talk about them there's so many uh the one called something like bobby gold in hell or something that's one of his more popular ones reunion is a very popular play Uh, we picked the shawl because it continues in our look at one act form or short play form and probably when we hit synopsis or just after that we'll talk with everybody a little bit about the form that this very short play takes but first let's do the context 1985 is when this play premiered interestingly it was the premiere show in the goodman's briar street theater this was the play that opened that theater in 85 if you're looking for where this locates itself within lots of mammoth's other work uh, american buffalo was about 10 years earlier 1975 when he really hit the big time in terms of being well as well known as a playwright this is one year after after Glengarry Glen Ross, which is also about con men of sorts, uh, uh, really ethically corrupt real estate agents. And this play is about con men of sorts. And so that, there's some interesting connections there and actually with a lot of, of Mammoth's work. Another play with the same main character named John. John is the main character in The Shawl and in Oleana. And that play comes about seven years later in 1992. So kind of smack dab in the middle of when Mamet was writing some of his more profound works. He created this short play that I think is one of Mamet's more profound works, although it's just not as well known. I just, uh, it's a pain for me. If I, have I said I love it yet? Have I <laughs> Once made or that twice. clear? <laughs> Uh, 
it played off Broadway at the Lincoln Center, 85 to 86. It went over and played in London in 86. Uh, it, there was a production in 2009 recently in the Young Vic in 2012. The Atlantic Theater played it in 2015 on a double bill with Prairie du Chien. And that's one of those form things that we talked about in our last episode on Far Away, was that one of the ways you might describe what a one-act, a short play, a whatever is, is if it's often presented as part of a double bill. And the shawl is often presented as part of a double bill, typically with Prairie du Chien, although I've found some productions where it's in a double bill with another playwright, like 2009 in New York, it was on a double bill with Doug Wright. So, it, you know, it's it's being produced every couple of years. Some regional professional theater will do it, typically on that double bill. And that is a real comfort to me, that it's still around. And as recently as 2015, had a, a pretty pretty major production. Yeah, it's a fairly timeless piece. There's not a lot of things in it that restrict it to a specific time frame or to a vernacular of, of a given decade. So it's it's very producible. And I think the themes in it, as we'll suss out, are, are very producible as well. I think I'm going to flip our order this time and talk about the synopsis first before we talk about the structure of the play, because I think some of the structure of the play serves the specific uh, plot structure itself and the way the story is building out. This story centers around uh, John and Charles and a Miss A. John and Charles are the probably the ones that we spend the most time with in the play. John is a practicing psychic. Um, and uh, Miss A is his client. And Charles, at the beginning of the play, is presented as his kind of sidekick help. Someone recently who has shown up to his world and is helping him in his work in some way. We yeah, we learn more about sure that later. I'm not sure if he's in the first scene with Miss A. I think that we're we're meant to assume when we meet him in the second scene that he was listening to that scene. That's pretty obvious in this. Yeah, story. and so I, he, maybe a trainee of sorts. I think their relationship is one of the centerpieces of the script between John yeah. and Charles. So that's probably a discussion for later on. Needless to say, there's some sort of relationship there that we're not entirely <laughs> privy to in the text. Yep, yep. The uh, the scenes of the play, as they progress, are actually in, in Mamet's uh, writing called acts. So the acts of the play, of which there are four, uh, center around the first act, which is an introduction of John and Miss A. Uh, the letter A, that's what I'm saying there. Um, John uh, and Miss A are in their first kind of session. She's uh, come to him and she has asked him uh, off of... Off of our perception of the moment, not in the script, to tell her what her problem is. And what follows is him doing a basically the psychic pattern or patter to figure out what her problem is. Um, he is able to predict uh, that she has a problem around her mother and eventually bring it to the terms of her mother's will. Her mother has died and she's trying to figure out what to do with the will. The second scene is Charles and John talking about what John did with Miss A. And what fo- what happens in that scene is kind of a demasking or demystifying of that whole last scene. By the end of scene one, you could make a pretty strong argument that John is a psychic. He's come up with a lot of information out of, the, out of just like nowhere, perceivably. Um, through scene two, John uh, invites Charles and the audience behind the curtain and shows off a lot of his uh, skills in deducement or inducement through through how he engages with clients. 
Um, you also learn in that scene that both he and Charles are kind of hard up on money right now. That's the core tension for Charles is he needs to make some money. Um, and so what is hatched by the end of this scene is Charles suggested John that he lead Miss A into giving the will not only contending the will, she has to go, she's wondering whether she should fight for the will or not because her mom left money to someone else. So she's wondering if she should contend the will. John convinces, or Charles convinces John to try to lead her to give the money to them. Then a seance scene occurs. Which I, I do want to say, I think it's notable that that is not the plan from the beginning. Yes. Sometimes in like summaries of the script that you'll read in reviews or on playbills or something, it's something like uh, a down on his luck psychic uh, tries to fool his client into giving her her fortune or something like that. And I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that as a summary of the script because that paints the psychic character, John, I think potentially as worse than he actually is because that's not his idea from the beginning. This is something he's eventually talked into by Charles to try to steal the fortune. I agree with that completely. If there's some like sympathy around these characters who try to con Miss A out of her money, it's that John, at least initially, doesn't is not wanting this. He doesn't, he's his structure of being paid is at the end asking for essentially a donation. At the end, which could be one session could be 10 sessions could be years <laughs> yeah actually and that's a that's a bit of contention between him and charles is that john just admits sort of outright that he doesn't know how long this will take charles tries to give him diff different increments like will it be days well are we talking weeks is it going to be years before she's done and she's going to pay us and john just doesn't know that's sort of how his combination of of being a psychic and like amateur therapy sessions work <laughs> yep <laughs> yep so just to wrap up the synopsis real quick we've got uh scene three which is a seance scene in which charles deploys a bit of a strategy maybe to uh <laughs> to try to get miss a to uh led towards giving her the money from her will to the both of them um, it's a it's a delightful scene that I'm sure we'll spend a good chunk of the conversation around. So I'm not going to do a whole bunch there, but it's a full seance scene where he uh, contacts both a ghost from the past and her mother that eventually leads her to leads her to say to him, can you advise me about where I should put the money? Of course, there's a delightful trap. Um, one of the pictures or the artifacts that Miss A has used to uh, corroborate the image of her mother is, in fact, a yearbook picture. Um, and, uh, of someone else. Of someone else, not her mother. So she catches John in that lie. Um, she begins to get up and leave. Uh, Charles is freaking out, trying to get her out of the room. It looks like it's all falling apart. And then John reveals the, the amazing information that he knows her mother wore a red shawl. And uh, not only that, but that her mother, somehow she attained that uh, red shawl and then lost it. Um, so, so again, it's brought into question. How did he know this? How could it be possible that he could know this? Miss A is swayed by the end of this a little bit. At least she stops running out of the room and the scene ends. The final scene of the play is uh, starts with John and Charles. Charles is kind of grappling with... Uh, with John around, John wants him to leave. He doesn't think that they can have a partnership anymore, whatever their partnership is. Um, they don't, he doesn't think it's working out. Partnership is probably a good word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, John does not think that it's working out anymore. Charles is kind of seeking for uh, 
for answers for a couple more things yet. He doesn't understand. He wants understanding in in a way as much as he wants money out of this interaction. He right, wants to understand. John revealed all of his tricks, supposedly, and how he plays the game, pretends at being a psychic in scene act two. But then there are some things which occur in scene act three, which don't fit what Charles supposedly learned from John in two. And then actually Charles brings up something from one that didn't fit with that either. And so he's now starting to say, well, how did you know all of that? That didn't fit with what you taught me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And so eventually by the end of the scene, John answers all those questions to some level of satisfaction for Charles. Charles leaves, and in a very quick turnaround, Miss A comes in for another psychic session. Um, she uh, speaks speaks to John, uh, and, and the, the play ends very ambiguously again. We kind of leave, have to leave the door open again to wondering whether he's a psychic or not, which... Um, yeah, he's he adds one more little piece of information at the end that we don't know where it comes from. Uh, he throws in at the very, pretty much the last two lines of the play that he knows that she didn't just lose the red shawl, that she burnt it in a rage. And she says that, yes, I, I did do that, specifically five years ago. Some more specifics are thrown out. You wonder at the end, how does he know this? And the play ends. So you said something at the beginning of all of this, which uh, is an interesting thing, given that we included this play in Mini Month, which is ostensibly about one act, <laughs> which is that this play has four acts. <laughs> uh-huh. And there's not any question mark like there was with Carol Churchill's play, where it's just numbers. You could say they're acts, you could say they're scenes. She doesn't tell you what they are. But in the shawl, they are definitely acts because (laughs) he says act one. Yep. They're super acts. Act three, act four. Now, they're no more or less divisionary. They're no more or different really than Carol Churchill's divisions of the previous script. She doesn't necessarily call them acts. This is into that larger form question of scripts, which is, I mean... Is it just arbitrary that these are acts? You talked about them as scenes through the whole of the synopsis. They could just as easily be scenes. Mm-hmm. Certainly you wouldn't need a act break here. Like when I think of acts, I think of breaks happening. Um, certain, certainly occasionally the intermission happens between acts and a full-length play. Um, you wouldn't need that for this play, both because they are fairly, it's fairly short. Um, it's, it's only 54 pages, I believe, in my script. Um, and, uh... And you just you just don't need the break from this. It's a fairly fast moving play, so uh, the the designation of acts for me feels synonymous with scenes. I don't I don't know a different way to divide up this play that gives it a specificity of an act. Yeah, I agree. It, it, the runtime is only about forty minutes, and that is typically of a what you'd think of more traditionally as a one or as a full length play that's about half the running time even a little shy of half the running time so in that sense it's called a one act people all around the world call it a one act it's presenting two one act plays by David Gamet the shawl and prairie du chien and it's like well yeah <laughs> it's not it's not in any technical way is it a one act right if, if david mammon has any say on the thing it's a four act play <laughs> but it's not like Shakespeare length. It's a short play. So 
ultimately, in the three scripts we've experienced so far, I think the major thing we're taking away is that to call a play a one-act means nothing. It just means nothing. (laughs) It is an absolutely arbitrary statement. Two full-length plays that are technically one-act, Vinegar Tom by Carol Churchill, we talked about that last week, that that's like a 19-scene play, but all contained within one quote-unquote act, whatever that means. Guards at the Taj, which we just talked about a few weeks ago, one act, just a bunch of scenes, but a full-length show. This play, four acts, but 40 minutes long. Yeah. So <laughs> the form of playwriting is, it's it's gray. It, it's, it, it, playwrights divide their scripts in the ways that make the most sense to them. So when mm-hmm. you say one act, Jackson, are, are we coming down on that we're, what we're really talking about is like a length? I think so, yeah, because we can't. Uh, another bit of evidence that you could bring into this about around it being a one act is it does have unity of place, as we talked to before. It takes place in one spot, um, which is generally a hall, one of the hallmarks people use to designate a one act. But that's not always the case, as we talked about last week with Far Away. So I think that the the one unifying theme is is the length of the play. I, I, I like the definition that you talked about last time of this is a play that can be done with another play and make an evening of theater roughly two to three hours long with between the two of them with an intermission. So that's 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 the my working definition. At least that's what I'm coming away from mini month uh, with as my working definition of a one act. Well, and it's so interesting. I mean, in full length plays, this exists as well. The ways that playwrights create not the structure of the story, but the structure of the script the acts, the scenes, the breaks, when things are supposed to occur. But when you're reading a full-length play, I don't know, because there's so much else going on, there's an hour and a half to three hours of story, that's just not, I don't know, it's so far down the list of things to talk about. But a one-act or a short play, almost by definition, is a thing of form. And so the form of what it is and how they're arranged and built together is so fascinating to me as a director and as a playwright to see how these different playwrights create their short plays, their one acts, these pieces of form and story together. And with that being said, Mamet deploys the structure of a four-act, one-act play excellently in this little one-act play. What it does is each act welcomes you behind the curtain, kind of. Each each act, you start one act in Miss A's shoes um, of this kind of like, whoa, what's happening? He's he's like g- delivering a psychic vision to her. Then see act two, you see behind the curtain. He's telling Charles about basically all the research that he did, all the little ticks that she showed him that uh, allow him to make the information or bring, bring the information back to her about her past and these psychic thoughts. Scene three is the seance scene where, again, you're thrown into this question of where does he know how the red shawl got there? Scene four, he explains how he knows where the red shawl came from. So this this act structure, this in front of curtain show, behind curtain show, is served very well in this short play by, by using those four act delineations. Yeah, and actually this storytelling structure, moving away from the form structure of the script into the way that the storytelling is built, this is a really kind of classic, normal, very familiar way of telling a story, especially in play or even film sometimes you see it, where you have one scene occur, you could call it, let's say, A. 
scene A occurs, which suggests some things. Is this guy psychic? We set up the world of there's a client and a psychic. Then scene B occurs, and scene B is largely a reflection on what happened in scene A, which provides the audience with a lot more information that they didn't get. It's sort of reverse dramatic irony. You only learn what was truly going on in A by further explanation in B. Uh, like Rebecca Gilman's play Boy Gets Girl is sort of built on that at least early part of the structure where something happens. I think in Boy Gets Girl, they're on a date in scene A in this case. And then scene B, and actually the next couple scenes, the, the female character, I'm sorry, I forget the character's names. She expounds on why that date was uncomfortable. So you learn more about what was truly going on in A. In this case, we learn from John and Charles all the tricks of pretending to be a psychic. And B, or or that this middle section, then sets up a higher stakes version of scene A to occur later on to test the theory. So Charles, having learned the tricks of the of what John says, says, now we're going to do it one better. You're not just going to be helping her predict and explain her own life to you. You're going to be pretending to be contacting the spirit world. Oh, and by the way, here are all these other stakes to set up a further confrontation in like part three, scene C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the, it's it's this slow building. Uh, you, you learn some information. You learn what supports that information. And then again, you, you ping pong it up. And it just is this kind of slowly building staircase that leads us towards the climax of the play. I think a play from maybe last season, uh, a Dinner with Friends, it has sort of a similar ABC thing going for it too, right? In A, there's yeah. those the three friends that are at the dinner, and we do learn some information that there's a divorce occurring and that she's really sad about it in that A scene, but then only in that middle B scene when the, the husband that's coming home, again, I'm sorry, I don't have the characters' names, the husband that comes home, he reveals that, oh, you weren't supposed to tell them about that. It's sort of reverse dramatic irony, right? That's something we could have known in watching scene A that would have made scene A interesting. But by learning it in B, we're forced to look back at the interaction that happened in A and wonder about what we experienced. And then with Dinner with Friends, actually the C format happens too, right? They set up a higher stakes interaction of the same thing where the husband goes back to those friends in the next scene to try to do that again, to paint his side of the story. Right, right. I think what's interesting about this version of that cycle is that it's around psychics and and this kind of magic world, something that, you know, some most of us, I'm guessing, have once or twice, you know, wondered about psychics. They're they're pretty <laughs> they're pretty <laughs> you know, normal cultural thing. Um and you know, just like wondered around like how does that work? What's going on? How are they able to tell me that? Or like card trick magicians or magic in general. We've we've tried to want like wondering around that. So entering into that first scene, you know, you're you you're not you're, you don't really know what's happening. You're on the journey with Miss A through that first scene. And then in scene 2, it's almost like it's getting ripped down for you as well. It's interesting. Mamet has, in so many of his other plays, characters sort of use this truth and illusion uh, disguise, right? It becomes a weapon that they use. When are they lying? When are they not lying to each other, to what's going on? But in Mamet's scripts, see if you disagree with me, Jackson, I don't find it to be as often the subject of the story, 
being the truth or illusion of what's going on. Whereas here in the shawl, what's true, what's not true, how do we reveal truth, how do we, uh, you know, how do we present truth to each other, and what stakes does that bring us out? That's sort of the subject of this play. This play is almost a commentary on some of what his other characters and other scripts use as weapons, the, yeah. the, the creating an illusionary world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you have you have to uh, grapple with that with John in this play. Like for some reason, John has this kind of altruistic view of the world, right? Or a view of his role in the world. He's he's he's. I think you're right in saying he's kind of like an amateur therapist, but maybe even just like a century ago therapist, <laughs> like like that that style of he's just trying to help people work through their problems via his inference, his ability to guide them through uh, their own memories of things. So he he deploys his uh, psychic abilities to to help people. I think I think he would say that of himself at least. I, I um, would think so too, and that's what makes him to me an interesting character for Mamet to write. He's he's almost. Um, he he's in a like a huckster profession, right? Like a con man profession, the psychic thing. And he maybe is like the one good guy in that profession. And, and Mamet tends to write about like really bad people <laughs> in maybe sometimes con men professions, but then also like real estate agents and Glengarry Glenn Ross. That's a real profession full of lots of really great people. And owning an antique shop, you could be a, you know, that's, there's nothing inherently con person about that. But Mamet <laughs> writes in people who are uncomfortable at best into those roles. In this case, he's taking a role which is uncomfortable at best, the, like the game of lying to people, making them believe you have powers you don't, and written someone that might reasonably be a decent person. Yeah, <laughs> which he still then, I think, juxtaposes with someone who maybe is not a decent person. And I think that's maybe where you see some of that mammotism come out is that Charles then tries to run the game. He tries to, like, figure out a way to make it work for him, figure out a way that this 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 power power is mentioned in this play quite a bit. This power can uh, help him get out of debt, assumedly, get out, get into get into some sort of financial situation that is better than where he's at. Right. We know that they together or they separately are poor. It's a little bit unclear what relationship they have. Perhaps that should be what we talk about next. But at the very least, we know that as a group, they're very poor. And we know that because in that act two, uh, they're talking about money and they've just made some tea. And Charles basically says, well, if you didn't spend any of the money that she gave you, how do you have tea? Like they're so poor that they need the immediate influx of cash even to have tea on hand. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm just so curious about how these two found each other, but like they're certain that they're both they're both carrying this this weight of of uh, financial insecurity. I think Charles is carrying it more than John. John doesn't seem as worried about it, um, but he also apparently like hides fifty dollar bills from Charles with the with the belief that uh, he's saving it for a future interaction. Well, right. So the fifty dollar bill is probably a good example of what we just talked about with John par- potentially being one of the better people that Mammoth's ever written. She apparently, this is not something we see, in an offstage scene at the end of what would have been Act 1, apparently he's asked her as a, 
it's like a gesture of confidence to write her name on Miss A's name on a uh, a fifty dollar bill and give it to him, and then he'll have it for her the next time she comes in. I guess it's supposed to work like a deposit or uh, maybe the reverse of a deposit. Like she gives him money, and if he still has the money next time, then he's trustworthy. Right. He's assumedly <laughs> gonna like give it back to her. Right. Um, yeah. And it's important that it's the same fifty dollar bill because she's got her name written on it. So in that intervening scene between the two scenes with Miss A. Charles tries to convince John to spend that money, and he insists over and over. Now, this the money is a gesture of confidence. I can't spend it. I can't spend it. You know, if he's every bit the huckster con man that some of the like summaries of this play would make you believe, then he's spending that money. Right. <laughs> you don't see him give it back either, so he might have. Um, well, that's but... <laughs> a good point. <laughs> um, so... What's the deal with Charles and John? What is going on? So, He's so a trainee of sorts in that John is at least explaining to him how the profession works. I don't think before meeting John, Charles was like hoping to be a psychic, though. I think their relationship is separate from that. Do you get the same feeling, Jackson? I do. I think so. So. Do you agree with me that their relationship is a fairly recent one, like a couple weeks old? Like, that's what I'm inferring from some of the lines of the play. Yeah, I think that they're newly partners. And I, I refer back to when you said partners and we agreed that that was a good word to use. Yeah. They're partners of some sort. Uh, for a while, and look, there's nothing in the script. It doesn't say in the character descriptions who they are. This play, like Mitch of Mammoth, has almost no stage directions in it. So it, there's, there's nothing in Mammoth's instructions to the production team that tells you what this is supposed to be. It's all textual clues. And you might wonder, well, maybe he, like, uh, their age difference as such and some of the language is intimate enough that you wonder like is John Charles's estranged father that's one option potentially but I think the consensus among people who've read the script and ultimately I think what is best supported by the evidence is that they're lovers I think yeah. that they're in a romantic relationship and that's a fairly recent one and I don't know it's, it's you know the details of it are absolutely mysterious are they living together who knows are they just dating who knows I, you do not know that whatsoever yeah yep and and i think that's supported that that supports why john is attached to charles better than just like a pupil situation um i think uh, charles is there for for a variety of reasons i think uh him being john's lover is a good reason he is curious around psychics in general i think that he is after knowledge um so maybe he has some idea of being some sort of an apprentice situation um he's trying to learn the different practices that john is deploying but uh I think I think those are the, the the two biggest circles that both of them are in. Is this this kind of um, interesting, some sort of intimate relationship with them, and uh, and this knowledge around psychicism in general? I think also John might be thinking of him a little bit as someone he's helping. John might be thinking of Charles as someone he's helping. At least the last scene might suggest that. Well, there, there is certainly a connection. John certainly wants to give something immaterial, nebulous to Charles, whether that's romantically or because he's an older man and Charles is a younger man in, in sort of a teaching kind of way. This is an exchange that they have in, in Act 2. 
Uh, John says, what I have, whatever I have, whatever I have is yours. Charles, and what is that just now? John, just now that's very little in material things, very little. What I can offer you is a profession, the beginnings of a craft, which would sustain you. So John wants to teach Charles his ways, I guess. And that language is very intimate, right? Whatever I have is yours. That's not the language of a pupil. It might be the language of a father and son. But I think more likely that that exchange amidst other things suggests that they're lovers. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the strange line that John says to Miss A at the end of the play. It's after Charles has left. Um, and, and Miss A comes in and John says, oh, forgive me. I was just with a client. Um, and, and he moves on and tries to center himself around the conversation with Miss A. Um, I wonder if that's, that I was just with a client is a, a, a kind of a, an admission of anything, or if it's just a way for him to kind of process through into the next moment and explain away the mood that he's currently in. Right. Yeah. Is it just a lie or is it? A lie, I mean, Charles isn't a client in a traditional sense, but is it a lie with some mixture of truth that uh, in the same way that I tried to help my real clients by getting them to suggest what they're really after, what they really need, and trying to offer them some something that I have, you know, in exchange, it, was I doing that to Charles? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, there are moments where we as the audience are like, oh, maybe John is reading Charles's past too um, through, through the play. But it turns out that he's he's just using it as a teaching moment as well. So I think there's a lot of questions around these two, a lot of questions around what John is actually capable of and and how he views himself in the relationships that he involves himself with. We know that Charles is important to John, however, because that is ultimately the thing that sets up the seance that John is uncomfortable with. Charles has, in Act 2, uh, learned that this that John could feasibly pretend a seance, that he has the skills to pretend a seance and suggest via the, the mother in heaven that uh, that Miss A give their fortune, give her fortune to Charles and John. Jo Charles has learned that John has that skill, but John does not have that inclination. He is not, he thinks that's immoral. That's not really what he's after. He's not, as you said earlier, he, he doesn't seem to be that concerned about money. And he believes that Miss A will take care of him at the end when he's offered her the help that she's really there to receive, which is some kind of emotional release of the, uh, of the, the pain of losing her mother and, and whatever. But Charles has learned that John could do this and could feasibly con this woman into giving them her fortune. And so he starts to press John that he should do it. And ultimately, it comes down to Charles saying, you're going to do it or I'm going to leave you. Yeah. And that is what convinces John ultimately to do it. Yeah, there has to be something at stake that he wants to, uh, that, he, that he is forced into this role. Because he's not... He's, he's, he's not comfortable with it. He's, I don't think anything about John um, moves him to want to take the money away from this woman. Um, but he, 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 I agree that, that that scene, his choice to stay with Charles and to push through into the seance is, is a significant marker in their relationship, whatever it may be, that he cares for Charles enough to do this pretty uncomfortable and manipulative thing to, to bring about what Charles wants. And of course, this is such a great example of why Mamet is the 
playwriting prowess master that he is because he has set up this scenario in which all of these characters have such clear competing goals. John and Charles are at cross purposes and John is put in a position where he has to choose between parts of his life, between things that are important to him. And you see where his allegiance is going. I mean, it's such great writing to put characters and inevitably they're going to have to crash. John's desire to be an honest, earnest help to Miss A through some smoke and mirrors. But I think at, at its core, what he's trying to offer her is something real beyond the psychic power. But John's desire to offer that to Miss A comes in direct conflict with his desire to continue his relationship with Charles. And it not, doesn't do that because of some accident. It does that because Charles forces the issue. I mean, that's great writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great handling of tension and how how tension is resolved at cross purposes to what you want to happen or or the antithesis of what, what you want to sacrifice for the other person. And it turned and 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 good good uh result or a good way to tell the story of it not necessarily turning out for the better, right? Like by the end, um John and Charles can't stay together. They, they, there's something there's something been lost between them. Some of the mystery of their their life together has been evaporated by this event. And I think, you know, when it, when it in that act four, this is after the seance has gone so terribly wrong, and Miss A has revealed that the whole thing was a sham, and now, but she was sort of talked back into a discussion by this thing about the shawl, whatever has happened. In in scene or act four, Charles is kind of back on board into that questioning mystery, but now John is less interested in providing teachable answers as he is providing kind of the blunt, harsh truth. He's angry. He's upset about something. And whatever he's upset about is causing this rift that is going to force Charles to have to leave him. Now, what exactly has occurred? I mean, could it be that John was forced to do something that was truly fake? I'm not, I mean, he describes his profession as being fake, as being smoke and mirrors and a pretend game, but at the same time, you know, when, when he talks about how the people bring their problems and he helps them to discover their problems for themselves and work it out for themselves, that that's a little more real. But that's not what ultimately had to happen in Act 3. Yeah, a, a kind of a forcible manipulation of the other, or not forcible, a selfish manipulation of the client, I think, is what had to happen in that scene. A a uh, it it made him make a moral choice, and it did not did not sit well with him. Um, it, I think it's notable that a whole day probably goes by, certainly an evening, uh, if not more, goes by between those two scenes. So there's opportunity for subtextual things to have happened, but uh, but I think the action of the play points to that moment, points to that. Uh, uncomfortability with being forced into into a position to do something morally selfish with his talents. Um, that that that's the grievance that John is carrying into that that fourth act. Well, and it's it's so. I mean, again, the the writing and the structuring of the story works so well because just like one or three, I'm sorry, Act Three is sort of a mirror with higher stakes and different contexts of Act One. The beginning of Act Four is sort of a mirror with higher stakes in a different context of Act Two. Because again, John is forced to explain how he does what he did. 
how did what just occurred in the previous scene with a client, how did you actually make that happen? But the context, the tone has shifted. Instead of act two, where John is sort of lovingly describing the way that he manipulates and carefully allows the client to suggest for themselves what they need to hear, the details that they need to hear. Now it's a totally different tone. Now it's this whole thing is fake. It's a shell game. He actually calls it a shell game at one point, mm-hmm. which is not language he's used at any other point. So something about what he was forced by Charles to do in Act 3 has, for John, emphasized the grodiness of how fake what he does is and caused him now to be explaining a similar thing negatively. And he, I mean, I think some of the things that he he likes in the world are this sense of mystery this sense of uh his ability to do to help people um but then he talks about how whenever people like look at the, he's been explaining it from a behind the scenes view um there's a different fr- turn of phrase that he uses but that's what he's talking about he's been explaining these things to someone who is behind the scenes not but he's but he's begun to notice that Charles is receiving it as a member of the audience and so in that way, he's kind of sh- seeing Charles not appreciate the work that he's doing um, and just seeing the illusion shattered and seeing how the illusion can be turned to his purposes. So in that way, maybe that connects it into their relationship, too. And John maybe feeling less valued and pretty used by Charles uh, to with specifically his talents being used to try to bring money to them. The other thing that has happened is that they've gotten caught lying, right? And that did not happen in Act 1 either. In fact, in Act 2, as John and Charles are talking about this weird profession that John has, John describes how it... One of the things that's so weird about it is that if you do your job right, nobody notices. Nobody catches the art. In Act 2, the language is very artistic, as John describes the methods of holding one of these psychic sessions. And how when you do it right, the art goes unnoticed. And then in Act 3, they do it wrong. And the curtain is pulled back not just to Charles, who John intentionally let behind the curtain, but also to Miss A, who ends up sort of forcing her way or or they force her to see the mechanism of the lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the truth behind behind what's actually happening. And let's 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 talk about Miss A for a second. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're towards the end of I mean, we're getting close to the end of the podcast. And Miss A is a, an interesting character. I think she's a little bit underserved in this play. I mean, just the naming of no, her. Man, um, underwrote one of his female characters. What? <laughs> You're blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just just the naming of her as Miss A, I think, notes that. There's some level of importance ascribed to the male characters well, in this play. The, the names are so interesting. I, I intentionally looked through and checked again to see that I was right about this. Of the three characters' names, only one of them is actually said in the entire script and only one time. Yeah. He just as easily could have named them anything or just like <laughs> man, woman, other man. I mean, right. the name Charles is said aloud one time and that's the only name. <laughs> yep. Um so 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 Miss A uh what do we what do we get from her in this play? What 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 is the I mean in some ways she's kind of the the uh, impetus for this fight between John and Charles. She's her her interaction with John as a client is the 
field on which John and Charles's relationship falls apart. Um, and in that way, she's a very representative character of Mammoth's women. The, the accusation against Mammoth is often that when he includes women in his script, which is not all that often, he t- typically they just end up being sort of plot fodder, and they're not very well fully developed characters. And she, there's some of that in her character in this one for sure. Is she a little bit of plot fodder? Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 probably close to what we're going to land on, but uh, because uh, alas, that's that's probably probably the truth of this play. However, is there anything else? What else in reflecting on this play, and and specifically Miss A's role in this play? Is there a uh, 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 another thing that we can learn? I, I I wonder around this this like her being the one to reveal the lie. Um, you know, two pages later, she accepts the lie again, at least to the extent that she comes back for another session. But still, the 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 person who will not be fooled by this moral selfishness, the person who has the wherewithal to stop what's going on. Right. Yeah, she's not uh, she's not easily duped. She's a skeptical, intelligent person, even to the extent that John at, in Act Two, after having had a session with her in Act One, John says, I've got her, basically. She's totally on board. She's fooled. She's in it for the game now. And he ends up tricked by her. I don't think he has any thought whatsoever that she's going to bring a fake picture to test him. So that's a credit to her intelligence and her natural suspicion that she's not, you know, she's not some sort of uh, stereotypical, uh, empty written female character that's sort of dumb and falls for anything. Mamet has written somebody that's in, in many ways smarter than the men in the show and ultimately is able to pull one over on them. So the fact that she brings that picture back is is. I think an interesting feature and you wonder what happened in her life in that offstage scene. Was she more skeptical in act one than she seemed between act one and act three? Did, did she have coffee with a friend and her friends like, you can't believe that it's a psychic or <laughs> did she, you know, what, ha- what happened between one and three? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's the, the, that winds up being the kind of locus of, of her, um, her own in this play uh the moment where she gets to shine in this play is is that that scene three or act three because because at the end of the play she's kind of bought wholesale back into it again she talks about how he's she believes that he saw her um her being her mother um that that john saw her mother in the vision and uh and kind of allows the the regular pattern to reestablish. But that moment, that one moment where the tables turn in, in scene three seems to be her moment to shine in the play. Well, and I mean, as an actor, I think that Miss A would be a very challenging character to play because so much of John's psychic patter has to be based on what he, in the world of the play, what John sees in Miss A, the way she reacts to his different suggestions, the way when he says a word, her eyes lift, and that, I mean, he talks all about that in Act 2, the way that he can see in her face, the way she's reacting inside her head to all the different things that he suggests or subtly suggests or whatever. So as an actress, I mean, you have to be on on it to offer everything that is needed in Mm -hmm. act one and act three but the other thing that is interesting and that if i were directing the show i would want to have some good discussions with the actress playing miss hay is i mean why does she come to a psychic 
She clearly doesn't believe in people being psychic, at least initially, because she brings a series of tests that she wants John to prove his powers with. And then later in the play, she tries to trick him to prove that it's a fake. Why does a person like that go to a psychic at all? Yeah, yeah. You have to ask the ask the question what she's grappling with. I think some of it is is maybe sussed out um, through the play, but like... What 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 is she going into? What is she carrying with her? What is the subtext? Uh, and I like what she said about the her role as a, a reactor. She there's there's quite a few specific things that John tells to Charles, clue him into different beats of the character, and in the and it's up to the actress playing Miss A to kind of cue those beats um, or cue those cue those intuitions. And that way she's kind of reminiscent of the, the zoo story. Um, I'm forgetting the two characters, but the guy who's on the bench in zoo story um, is, has a similar role um, to, to kind of cue the madness that is the other character. I think she has uh, Miss A has to cue John into these moments of intuition, into these moments of inference through just basically physical cues. Cause a lot of her lines are one word or, or one line on the page. And what does she want out of all this? I mean, you the most basic, most based on the text explanation, she just wants to know what she's supposed to do about her mother's will. But even John says that that's not really what she wants. He infers that she's really after, in his sort of armchair therapist sort of way, uh, a way to deal with uh, the anger she feels at her mother for proving that your mother never loved her by giving the money to her stepfather or uh, a way to combat the grief over losing both her mother and her father. She lost at a young age. So what's what's ultimately the person like that really there for? And does she ultimately get that at the end? Another interesting question for Miss A, one of the only unverified things, I mean, there's a couple of them, one of the major unverified things that we don't know in the play is, is the will real? I don't know how much there is to suggest it's real or not real. All we have is her word on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, what, what is the, is this just like a, a, an interesting foray into psychicism around your family or is, is it, is it actually the thing that she is bringing the, the will is the thing that she's, she's bringing to the situation in that way. It's kind of the, the wondering around, you get to wonder the three categories that John picks picks up earlier on in the play of things that people wonder about uh, love family, I think is the second one and money. Yeah, um, so this is John saying these are the three problems. People always come, he says, you always know somebody who comes in has a problem. So you say, you've got a problem. And they're like, oh, how did you know? And he's like, people only come to psychics if they have problems. And it's typically one of three problems, money, illness, or uh, love. Yeah, thank you. Illness is the second one. And so so you can play with those a little bit. I think they come down on the 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 belief that it is money um that is is the problem. Um but but I think that there's freedom for to to try to play with, you know, is it love? Is is that what's uh, is, is that what's actually the underlying theme of this is love or lack of love. So, uh, what do you think, Jackson? Is John psychic? Uh <laughs> 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 um, 
I, I, I think at the end of the play, you're meant to ask. I, you don't know. I think that there's a act five of this play where he somehow tells someone how he managed to figure out that she burned it somewhere. Um. Right. So <laughs> the end of act three, as we talked about, the in act three is where the Miss A reveals the picture was never of her mother. She knows they're a fake. She's about to storm out. And John talks her back in by talking about this red shawl with a, with, I think it's a yellow flower on it and how the, the shawl smelled to her. And her mother wrapped her in the shawl and called her some specific sort of pet names like a mother might and all these specific memories around the lost shawl and how she lost the red shawl five years ago things that ostensibly he would not be able to know if he were not a psychic in act four charles says hey what about all that stuff that you were (laughs) didn't how could you have known that and john claims to have gone to the library and done some research and found it's a little unclear whether he found pictures that he was pretty sure were of her mother because they were wealthy he knows that already or just found pictures of wealthy women in red shawls was able to infer it somehow charles doesn't ever really press him on that and i'd yeah, be interesting yep. to see him i'd be interested to see a scene where he gets pressed more on that what do you mean you looked up and saw some pictures of someone in a red shawl <laughs> Yeah, that seems pretty lucky. But um <laughs> but yeah, so so he picks up there and he's he claims that that's the, that's the uh way he figured out that there was a red shawl. However, in the last scene, he tells her and she admits that this is true or she says that this is true. John tells Miss A um that you didn't just lose the shawl, you burned it in anger 5 years ago. Just after admitting and he could be lying, of course. But just after admitting that he did have a psychic vision and saw it. She, Miss A is pressing him. How did you know that? How did you know that? You must tell me. You saw my mother. You saw my mother. I'm just summarizing. And finally, John says, yes. And then he reveals, oh, and I saw that you didn't actually lose the shawl five years ago. You burnt it by a lake. And the play ends, spoiler alert, with Miss A saying, yeah, you're right, I burn it. And then I what? It's a, an ellipse is there. And then I, is Mammoth famous for ellipses, and then I ellipse, trying yep. to get him to suggest what happened next. John ends the play, I don't know, that's all I saw. Yeah. Which, it kind of goes against the way he starts the play, right? She essentially asked the same question off stage at the beginning of the play. What's my problem? And he launches into the pattern that is that is uh, act one, this like slow sussing out of information. This, though, is is a little bit more definitive. He's not trying to convince her that he that he has uh, information. He's not trying to suss out information from her in a helpful way. He just stops it. He says, no, no, that, that's all. I saw that. And that's the end of the vision. And he's already received an offer of money, right? She's already said, I've decided that I am going to contest the will in court. I think that you were very helpful to me in working out that that's what I need you to do, even though I know that his seance was a fake. So I do want to offer you some money, just like John said she would, and Charles uh-huh. was all upset about. He was right in the end. She came and almost word for word says what he predicted that people would typically say, which is, I want to pay you some out. How much should I pay you? He suggests some numbers, and they go back and forth. But that's already happened. Now he's being pressed for what? I mean, what's John's purpose in this? Is he... Is it is it you know useful for him internally to reveal that he either is truly psychic or does he get some thrill over creating one more con to convince her? 
Right. <laughs> I mean, if, if the struggle for me is that if you come down on him as psychic at the end of this play, you have all so many more questions. What is he? How is he doing this? Is he some sort of being that can see things and he's just like having a fun time? Or or what's that that those are the questions for me at the end of the play. But that I think that's the that's the tension, right? Like you have you're you're not sure. You're never fully sure. Um, whether or not he's psychic or not, or whether to broaden the theme, whether magic in the world exists, exists around you or not. Um, and, and, and that's the kind of interesting question that you, that, that last, just those last two lines pretty much end up making the audience ask. Well, yeah. And, and the suggestion that he knows somehow that she burned it. We know other times in the play, he's been very clear that typically he just takes educated guesses. He just sort of gets some facts and is able to make a leap and educated guess. Like he knows that she's there. This is in, uh, he's explaining what he did in act one, in act two to Charles. It's like, I know that she said already that she had money problem, that her, she's there because of a money problem. If she's a wealthy woman like her, it's probably a legal problem with money. Cause she has, she's able to get money freely. She's wealthy. But so if, if there's a money problem, there's probably law. So he predicts that has a, law somehow and then charles says but you predicted that it was her mother's will and charles and john just goes yeah well i just guessed on that yeah, yeah lucky guess <laughs> so we know that he guesses so could this could this prediction of the burning thing be truly a guess sure of course we don't have a lot to go either way or in fact we do have a lot of evidence for both sides that's really what it ultimately is is that there's a plenty of reasons to believe he's lying and there are some reasons to believe that he's truly psychic and is telling the truth about having a vision the specificity of it specifically um and that he's not going to he's going to stop digging for information at this point is is the primary evidence of like you burned it by that house that we talked about before. Um, so, so yeah, the specificity at the end kind of throws all that evidence of his, his uh, inference and in inductive reasoning out the door at the very last beat. I, like I said, this is one of my favorites of the mammoth world. I, I don't know what that says about me, uh, but that there it is. <laughs> I think one of the things that it says about me is that I actually like the plays where he writes people that aren't so stinking terrible <laughs> aren't awful. as the protagonist of his script. It's encouraging to me that this is a, a person who's trying at least it seems earnestly to do something good and is talked into doing something bad and put it cross purposes i mean that that's a story that i i'm i'm in for i'm not so stinking uncomfortable with as i am with so many of the mammoth stories <laughs> yeah i agree you, generally this play uh leaves you a little bit more comfortable by the end a little less uh uh, completely lacking hope for humanity. Um, but I don't know. What do you think, having read this play, all of you all out there in, in podcast land? If you have read this play, uh, been to one of the nights where it's done uh, with other one acts, or uh, been a part of this play in production at some point, we would love to keep talking about The Shawl by David Mamet with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at Podcast. You can also find us on Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those sites, and we'd love to keep talking about the psychic John and David Mamet's The Shawl with you. Absolutely. If you'd like to recommend this podcast to your friends, which we would really appreciate, you can send them to Podbean, where our podcast is hosted. We're also on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. The easiest way to find the new episodes as they come out is that every Monday when it's posted, we post a link to that new episode on Facebook. So you can connect with us on Facebook and just click the link every Monday to find the script. 
We got one more play left in many a month. We're doing Trifles by Susan Glaspell next week. So stay tuned for the last play in our themed month for season four. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We'll see you next week. See ya. See ya.